0: doesn't it you know oh it 's the transfiguration um, it's not a trippy off the tongue thing actually Peter James and John were present and we're told they were frightened by what was happening and the word which we translate transfiguration is in Greek um, transliterated into English metamorphosis is what happens isn't it ...with a caterpillar when it becomes a butterfly. What was happening on this mountain was there was a change of form in Jesus... ...from his earthly characteristics into something glorious... ...which was so outside theirs and would have been outside our expectation... ...that the three disciples with him just did not know what to do. They were scared out of their mind. Something of the glory, the Shekinah, the actual divinity, if you like, of Christ, was seen by them at that time. It was a a transfiguration. And we're told that during the course of this transfiguration, um, Moses and Elijah, which to us seems weird, but Moses and Elijah, which reminds us that there's life beyond death, appeared speaking to Jesus about his departure. It's not Mark who tells us they were speaking about the departure, it's Luke that tells us that. And so, as whilst in Mark 8, you see Jesus kind of thinking, my time is short, in Mark 9... It begins with this transfiguration, this spiritual conversation with Moses and Elijah about Jesus' departure. And I believe that from this chapter on, Jesus somehow or another um, just steams ahead. He's not going around introducing people to the good news solely now. This is what he's been doing. He's been going around preaching, teaching, healing the sick, interest, involve, um, teaching people that the kingdom of God is at hand. But now, from this chapter on, he realizes he's got less than a year to live. And I say that because if you follow the events of Mark chapter 9 and then compare with Luke chapter 9, you've got this amazing verse in Luke chapter 9 where it says, after the events of chapter 9 are over, we read this, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now if he's resolutely set out for Jerusalem then the next Passover will be his last one. From this chapter, he acknowledges he's got less than a year to live, he's got a lot of stuff to do, he has to steal himself, he has to go to Jerusalem, he has to get his disciples there with him, with some measure of understanding what it's all about, so they're going to be troubled in mind as they are in this chapter in Mark, because all kinds of... um, um, paradigms are changing. Mindsets have to be changed for them. A new world view has to be, sort of, um, has to be seeded inside them. Because what's going to happen in Jerusalem when Christ dies and raises, it rises again is going to change all their Jewish expectations, all their understanding of how God works, all their understanding of what it means to be a great person. A worker for God, everything is going to be transformed. And Jesus now has less than a year to prepare his disciples for what they don't yet even begin to understand. Um, I love actually this verse in um, it's Isaiah 50 verse seven, and it sums up. It sort of fills out that verse that Jesus set his face like to go to Jerusalem. Um, Isaiah 50, verse 7 says this. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know I will not be put to shame. We have to understand from Mark chapter 9 onwards, Jesus understands what's ahead of him. And that which I've just quoted from Isaiah 50, he understands to be ahead of him. Now what an awesome leader. What a brave character. What an incredible God in man should know that that's ahead of him and yet proceed with it with such boldness and compassion for those he's going to die for. Isn't he wonderful? That's the hope of the world born in the Middle East. We'll come back to the transfiguration shortly. The transfiguration is followed in Mark 9 by this event of the failure to heal the boy. Um, you You can't be cynical of the disciples, can you? Not honestly. When did we last heal a boy? We can't be cynical of them, but they had been out doing stuff in the name of Jesus beforehand, which is what many of us haven't done, perhaps for a long time. And on this occasion, they failed. Now, what has really struck me in this passage is the plea of the Father, that little conversation with the Lord Jesus. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And that really struck me, because where he says, if you can do anything, take pity on us, the Greek words used there are quite strong. The word, if you can do anything, could legitimately be written like this. If you run to the aid of those who cry for help. Now, I don't know how a word comes to mean that. But that's what my lexicon tells me. I think it's called a lexicon, isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, that's what my book of Greek words tells me. If you run to the aid of those who cry for help. Well, nothing, no word could better get to Jesus, could it? That's exactly why he's here. To run to the aid of those who cry for help. And then he says, take pity on us. And the word he uses is this word compassion, which now you're becoming familiar with, because every time I mention it, I say it means bowels of mercy. Mercy so if you 're the sort of person who runs to the, to, to, to the cries of those who uh, runs to those who are crying out for help and you 've got any any issue of mercy, help me. Now, how can Jesus resist that? This man brought his son to Jesus because that 's exactly how he felt it was the desperation he was in. And the disciples couldn't do anything about it. Jesus was up a mountain. And Jesus says, if you can. And now I love this now. I've not really understood it. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And now I have to cry of course he believes. Can't you see he believes? This is why he's traipsed across country with his boy and brought him to Jesus. This is why this passion is in his heart. If you run to the help of those who cry for help, then please let your compassion pity us. Of course this guy sees that Jesus is the only one who can do it. It's just that he's just been so let down by disciples who unfortunately for whatever reason couldn't do it, and then sidelined by an intellectual or theological argument opened up by, by the teachers of the law with the disciples. So that now it's nothing to do with his son. It's now it's to do with the theological reasons why you couldn't heal him. And why you're wrong. And why we sure ought to be able to heal him. We've done our healing. And we know we're right. Well, you didn't do it this time. And now the poor man and his boy are back there. When Jesus arrived the hope Lord can't you just feel this man cry and of course Jesus sorts it you deaf and dumb spirit come out of him now and never return to him Now the reason this has so gripped me, I think, is because I wonder how many people have come to Jesus, I'm not talking about this church, met Christians and been sidelined by Christian failure and argument to the point where there is no longer any help and the great hope they came with has been squashed there may be one or other of you here I don't know but what I want to say is if that is you please forgive us please forgive us we've got it wrong so many times and we've had so many silly and sometimes spiteful arguments with each other and theological interactions about words which mean nothing ultimately and if we put you off please forgive us but I just plead with you here's Jesus bypass us Go to him now, today. Ask him, cry to him. I do believe, help my unbelief. And I want to cry, Lord, ransom the many people we've all heard of who are now outside the church because once they were inside And Lord, will you take us through the paradigm shifts and the change of mindsets that may be necessary to make us the people of God that others come amongst and we can bring them to Jesus. Jesus still took his disciples with him, didn't he? He didn't drop them by the wayside. Say, you useless bunch. He did say, oh, how long am I to be with this generation? How long am I to bear with you? But he didn't drop them. Hallelujah. Just as he hadn't dropped Peter after Peter made that terrible mistake in chapter 8. But he took Peter up the mountain with him. So, Jesus hasn't dropped his church because of the mistakes we've made, if we have made mistakes. Because actually, he loves his church. He's about to set his face towards Jerusalem on its behalf. How he loves his church his people failures as sometimes the church has been and he wants to pick us up and teach us so I want to go back now to that transfiguration because Peter kind of messed it up again but I can't find anything in my heart to blame him honestly I think if I had been Peter I would have been no better and perhaps a lot worse back up on that mountain before all this has happened transfiguration is taking place some kind of morphing is going on and Jesus now begins to shine and his clothes begin to gleam so brightly we're told that no fuller on earth could wash them as clean, forget Ursil, or whatever people use these days. No fool on earth could make clothes this bright, because these were not just white, they were light. And we're told that the disciples are scared And Peter kind of dribbles out this kind of, oh Lord, it would be really good if we built three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He said this not knowing what to say, we're told, because they were so frightened. That is just so much like blokes, isn't it? Come on, blokes, admit it. Something awesome outside of all the connections we've ever made with our scientific and business minds something is happening perhaps it's in a prayer meeting and there is this suddenly the room is filled with this this awesome silence which isn't a dead silence which seems to bring eternity into the room with us and we can't hack it we have to pray something We can't bear the silence. Maybe you can. It was just in the nature of Peter to want to do something. He had no idea how to handle this experience. It was so beyond his expectation and understanding. He had to do something. Okay, let's build some boots great to have a record of this. And then a cloud came down and covered them. And a voice spoke out of the cloud. And it was God's voice. And I don't know about you, but if I was reading, if you were reading this out, would you practice how to say those words? How would you say the words That they heard from the cloud. Let's read it like you would hear it in many churches. A voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Perhaps there's too much emotion in that version. Who is God speaking to? The disciples, obviously. Why is he speaking to them? Why is he saying this? Has it got something to do with Peter not understanding? With the disciples themselves being so scared? I imagine, and you can put your own gloss on this, but I imagine that the voice might have sounded something like this. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him when Peter's missing the experience because he wants to do something. He's like me on holiday. I'm missing the experience because I want to take a photograph of it. And God is saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And that sometimes means stop. Don't do anything. Listen to him. And I just wondered well, for me, that is the strongest word that comes out of the whole of this chapter. Next week, we have a conference. We are doing the conferring. Our world is crumbling. Maybe something will come along to save it. But financially, we're in deep distress. France is now downgraded. European Union, well, who knows what's going to happen. The experts are now saying, Greece is definitely going to default. It's going to affect our incomes. Some of you are already being asked to drop your level of income for the same amount of work, or no, for a little bit more, because we're making redundancies. And because we haven't got the money anymore to buy in the resources which you once had, you're now expected to be our slave, but we don't use that word. And other people are being made redundant, and some people aren't going to be able to pay their mortgages, and some young people around here aren't going to be able to get to university, and others aren't going to be able to get a job, just as we were saying things are going to happen here next week we're going to meet and say heavenly father here we are your people we don't want to let the crowd down but we're already doing this much we can't do that much as well what do you want to do about it Help us, Lord. Listen. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. It may be that during the course of next week or this month, some of you will want to say, I want to change, believe God is telling me to change my direction. Or to stop doing those things, just to do that thing. But there are going to be people out here who really, if they knew about a saviour, are going to come and say, if you're the kind of one that runs to the help of those who cry out, have compassion on me. And God has called us to be his hands and his feet and his eyes and his body. There's more I could say, I'm gonna stop. It's five to twelve. God bless you.